G'day humans, this is your safe space for dangerous ideas. Do you ever think that social media is getting a little uh, out of control? Do you ever find yourself just scrolling? I'll just uh, I'll just quickly check Instagram while I'm sitting on the toilet and then you realise, oh, eight minutes has gone by. Oh, I guess I didn't really need to sit on the toilet for that long, but uh, something hooked me. Something got its little uh, its little anchors into the tendrils of my brain and kept me there. Today, Jordan Giao, who is, uh, he's, well, he's written a book called Disconnect, Why We Get Pushed to Extremes Online and How to Stop It. He's a former digital strategist, so he knows his stuff. He worked at the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and he was the head of social media for SBS, the special broadcasting service, which is another public broadcaster in Australia. So he's actually run social media uh, platforms. He has, well, not the platform, social media accounts. And he's been the digital strategist for uh, Australia's main public broadcaster. He's worked in Silicon Valley. He gained a lot of insights there into technology there in the tech capital of the world. He's now a research fellow at the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. All of the profits from this book will be ploughed back into the Australia Institute, uh, which is a think tank, to try to address some of the issues that he raises in the book. It's an interesting structure to the book. He basically goes through these uh, archetypes of humans who are being negatively impacted by big tech. Firstly, the online conspiracy theorist, then the COVID-19 anti-lockdown freedom fighter, then the social media narcissist, then the hateful troll, then the dating app pest, then the screen addict, and then the naive futurist. Uh, We jump around all of these archetypes. Well, not all of them, but as many ones as we could fit into uh, this conversation. I hope you find it as stimulating as I did. Enjoy the one and only Jordan Gow. goes when you're talking to people who are techno-optimists? Um, I think they secretly agree, but they're just not um, allowed to say so out loud. And so um, people like me are fortunate to be able to say those things out loud for them. Right. What's that line about it's very hard to convince someone of something when their livelihood depends on them not believing it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I don't begrudge anybody um, for that. And I've been in that position before too, so I can completely understand. But I think we do need a shift um, in that attitude, and and there's certainly enough evidence to um, to um, to be able to publicly talk about these things. And when you say you think that they secretly do agree, what is it that you're saying that you think they agree with? I think there's an increased recognition of the harms um, facilitated by digital platforms, and um, that in particular, it's a handful of small companies, and I call that out a lot. It's basically Facebook and YouTube. And um, you know, if if your job <clears throat> deals with them in any way, it's obviously very um, difficult to to point the finger so explicitly. But you know, whether it's a professional professional capacity or personal capacity, I think people are acknowledging that yes, there are a lot of harms in those environments. And um, we need to have a chat about what to do about them. It's kind of an overwhelming subject to even start to get our hands around in a conversation because those harms can be so scattered and sometimes people can be a bit vague about what harms they're talking about. So some people will talk about extremism at hate speech. Some people will talk about uh, the impact that it has on bullying amongst young people. Some people will talk about the impact it has on privacy and data collection. Some people will talk about the impact of screens, qua screens, as if there's something magically bad about a digital device that uh, that is not bad about a book. Where do you begin? I think that's a really great point. And so the way I structured the book is around these personas and um, the, the personas encapsulate a specific issue facilitated by digital platforms. So, for example, we have conspiracy theorists online. We have freedom fighters who, you know, protest lockdown mandates. We have hateful trolls, social media narcissists, screen addicts, and so on. And so I think, uh, as you pointed out, the, the, the issues are so broad and diverse that they can get quite overwhelming. But if you frame it through a person that you might know, 
you know, a cousin who's all of a sudden an anti-vaxxer and attended lockdown protests, you know, a friend who's become a bit of a troll. All of a sudden, those issues start to feel very real and very um, tangible, and people can start to understand them a little bit better, which is why the book is structured around those characters. And there's, of course, overlap between these characters, the conspiracy theorist and, say, the anti-lockdown freedom fighter. And to give them their due, uh, you know, the the counter-critique to your critique could be we've lived for a long time under a regime in which a very small handful of so-called experts were able to disseminate information to all of us, mostly old white men who would police and gatekeep the information that we were able to have. And now we have a more democratic consumption of information. And sometimes that will get things wrong in the case of science misinformation, for example. But sometimes it will perform a useful role in pushing back against some stodgy narrative that is is backed by big pharma and big drug companies and governments and so on. That, for example, maybe there were concerns about myocarditis in young men that were overlooked uh, you know, or downplayed by traditional media and by governments and drug companies in their zeal to get everybody vaccinated. And maybe there were, uh, there was too little criticism of the human rights impacts of some of the more uh, extreme lockdown measures like curfews or, you know, things that may not have been have had epidemiology behind them and that these mechanisms that Facebook and YouTube are platforms on which people can dissent and that dissent is a a powerful thing in a democracy. Yeah, it certainly is. I think um, what I would challenge is the idea that that plurality actually holds. So, you know, the, the utopian vision we had for the internet is that it would indeed, you know, do that and democratize all these voices. But what's happened particularly over the last, um, I'd say 10 years, is that plurality has actually shrunk and the internet is now dominated by a very small handful of particular companies, in particular um, Alphabet slash Google and Meta slash Facebook. So what, we, what we're seeing now is the sh- a shrinking of that plurality and those companies that now dominate have a very particular set of objectives that aren't necessarily um, aligned to that utopian vision. So what I mean by that is that they're for-profit um, companies. They decide that you know the the value that they want from people is to keep them on their platforms, so engagement at all costs. And what that results in is a particular set of outcomes for people using that um, environment and for people transacting in those platforms. And so that's what we're seeing the harms come through is that you know. Yes, it's okay to be on YouTube for, you know, fun little cat videos, but, you know, it's not just that that we use it for now. We use it for everything, like a big part of our information ecosystem. So that all of a sudden takes into account a lot of other harms. um, And through these platforms, those harms are being magnified. So uh, I guess the overall theme is I would challenge the, the, the tech neutrality idea. Um, and those platforms constantly use that as an excuse. You know, we're just the the foundation. You know, we're not the ones doing all these things. But actually, the way they build their platforms, the way they build their algorithms are very deliberate, and none of those things are neutral because they actually insert values into those um, software services. Right. I mean, let's be clear then about what we mean by neutral and what we mean by values, because when you say there's a shrinking of diversity, because you've got these two gigantic companies, you know, Alphabet, which owns Google, which owns YouTube, and Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, the there may be a shrinking of corporate diversity, but the very people who champion social media misinformation and who applaud the, the greater diversity of voices, even if that means there are conspiracy theories and misinformation, they would be the ones who are the most keen to say that there shouldn't be any deplatforming of people for ideological reasons, that there may be a shrinking of corporate diversity, but not of ideological diversity. And, and to the extent that there is uh, a thumb on the scale by these social media companies, they're generally doing it 
in a woke or politically correct direction by, you know, banning Donald Trump or and so on. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Elon Musk has been successful and so committed to taking over Twitter, right? A kind of a free speech crusade where you should tolerate a higher level of hate speech and misinformation on these platforms in the interests of free speech. So when you're talking about uh, neutrality and you're talking about values, you're not talking about the companies proactively deciding what kinds of ideas and posts should be prioritized or not. You're talking about something deeper or more sinister, which is the mindless whirring algorithms that favor some types of content over others? Yes, that's right. So it's it's all in the design of the software. And what I'd add to that is, you know, um, you mentioned earlier about the, the previous media ecosystem is, if you like, the gatekeepers. Um, uh, you know, and they were also run and continue to be run by a particular set of people. <clears throat> and that the the idea that the social platforms kind of provide an alternative to that. However, that ecosystem still has, while it's very imperfect, still has uh, uh, an environment of regulation of policies and rulemaking around it that um, constrain it in some ways. And like I said, quite imperfect. But the difference with these platforms is there are no rules around them um, or very, very few rules. So, you know, there's general copyright rules, but other than that, it's a bit of a free-for-all. And the, um, the preferred modus operandi of the platforms, particularly when it comes to what they choose to put on there, so editorializing, if you like, or um, moderation, if you like, is to be completely hands-off. And so what we have is an environment basically free of any type of constraints or rules. So naturally, it's going to be chaos. So, um, yeah, like I said, while the previous media ecosystem is, is has a lot of issues, at least we retain a degree of control and there were active forces that sought to moderate that. But just to clarify, I mean, the criticism of the libertarian right of the social media companies is precisely that they don't have the Wild West that you're saying there is. You know, Kanye <laughs> yes. was banned. Donald Trump was banned. Yeah. Right. So they are they are doing a bit of that. They've started to. That's right. They've started to after a, a, a great degree of public pressure, I guess, from from tech critics. And they've started to do that. Um, is that a good thing? Should they be doing more of it, more editorializing, more treating themselves like their publications rather than platforms? Yeah, I, I, I think the the overall um, idea is whether these platforms should moderate content or not. And it's a really tricky question to try and unpack. Um, and the other layer I would add to that is, um, you know, like, the Elon Musks of the world and the Kanye's of the world, um, you know, they're they're sort of buying these platforms as um, spheres for political influence, and you know, they sort of exist, but they're not elected, so they're not um, government officials. So, I guess what I'm saying is, um, you know, it, it's it's a it's a it's a tricky environment to try and place rules around, but we have to start to try and do that. I don't have a clean answer about whether they should editorialize or not, other than to say that, um, you know, the the platforms have gotten to the scale and the size where, you, you know, maybe it's even impossible to do that. So, um, you know... Do you I, mean just in terms of the manpower that you would need to be yeah, moderating it? Yeah, that's I mean, I always, I always feel, find that that's a little bit cute when I hear Zuckerberg say it, you know, oh, there we have a billion more users or however many they've got now. You know how many posts are going up, how many YouTube videos there are? We couldn't possibly make sure that they're all, you know, kosher before they go. Well, hang on a second. Imagine if, you know, McDonald's, for example, said, do you have any idea how many burgers we produce? We can't make sure that every single burger doesn't make somebody sick and doesn't have salmonella in it. <clears throat> you would say, that's a ridiculous cop out. It's you know it's got your big golden arches on it. If I go and eat a burger, even if it even if you don't own it, if it's a franchisee, then I should have an expectation that I'm not going to get sick. And you know what? You don't. You don't get sick from salmonella as a rule going to McDonald's. They manage to they employ however many people they need to employ, mm. and they impose the quality management standards that are necessary to make sure that if you eat a McDonald's burger, it may not be good for you, but it's not contaminated and it's not poisoned. 
And similarly, if Facebook needs to multiply by 10,000 the number of employees that it's got in order to make sure that posts don't go up that shouldn't go up, then it could. Now, then we come to the question, which you're, you're being, uh, you know, uh, uh, diplomatic and ambivalent about, which is, would it be a good idea to do that? And do you want, you know, from where does, does Zuckerberg get the right, mm. you know, since he's not democratically elected, mm. to determine the rules and the content of the speech that all of us are making to each other? That's right. And I, I think part of the issue is that we've let these platforms get so big and so pervasive to the point that that moderation issue is tricky, as you said. Um, when, you, you know, like we perhaps we should, uh, you know, think about alternative platforms that aren't so big or that, you know, the, the idea that there's a single online experience for the entire world, homogenizing everybody's culture, everybody's way of communicating into one platform online is just ridiculous. And so, you know, that's what platforms like Facebook and, and, and Google are trying to do. And it's obviously not working. And so, you know, thinking about how do we control that situation is, is, has become really tricky because it's gotten to the point where you know, the, the size is so big. So perhaps the first issue is that we we need to get those platforms back into a manageable size, and there are live um, you know antitrust cases against them um, where um, you know legislators are thinking about how to do that properly. At so the very that, least, do you mean splitting apart some of the apps from the parent company? Like, yes. why does WhatsApp have to be owned by the same company that owns Facebook? Precisely. That's right. So that our entire information ecosystem isn't reliant on just one or two things. And if we start to break them down into more manageable chunks, maybe that uh, moderation conversation all of a sudden is viable because they're not so huge and all pervasive. I mean, Zuckerberg says it's a, it's kind of a it's an it's always a fiction to think that big Goliaths remain big Goliaths. You know, MySpace was the Goliath, and then all of a sudden it wasn't. History is littered with the corpses of big companies that weren't agile enough to keep up with with their competitors. He points to Snapchat, he points to TikTok, he, he points to all of these, you know, and even Instagram, which of course now he owns as well. But mm. nonetheless, uh, you, you know, the way things look in 2035, you know, we may be looking back on this conversation going, it was ridiculous that we thought that Facebook would be the universal sort of mm. mode of communication that was so passe. Yeah, that's right. And we see um, platforms like TikTok emerging um, very quickly and being popular. And obviously, Facebook and others are nervous about it. But, you know, should we wait for that um, decline point to happen before we start to address these things? I think I think that's the, the, the sort of challenge is. And part of the intention of the book is to surface these voices that aren't necessarily being heard. So, you know, we can talk about these things in the abstract, like through antitrust or surveillance capitalism. But... There are real people being hurt by these platforms. And, and and so, you know, we shouldn't have to wait for market forces to correct itself or for a platform to all of a sudden, you know, not be so popular anymore to address some of these harms. And particularly when, you know, these companies are starting to talk about the next phase of the internet, which is, you know, things like the metaverse and Web3, and they're already staking their claim on that future when we haven't even resolved the issues from this version yet. You know, we can't keep letting these sort of powerful, too powerful companies shift the goalposts and keep building, um, you know, ahead of us and then just leaving all the issues for, for us to deal with ourselves. You dropped a, a piece of jargon in there, Jordan, surveillance yeah. capitalism, <laughs> yes. uh, which is a, a good one, um, coined by Shoshana Zuboff, I, I think, uh, who wrote a book called Surveillance Capitalism. Yeah. What is it? What's surveillance capitalism? So it's essentially about harvesting all our data and profiting from that. So YouTube and Facebook are free. That means the, tran um, the transaction cost is actually you us and our data. So, you know, our habits, our preferences, our movements, what we do every day, all that is then packaged up to sell to advertisers against those preferences. So because um, the product is free, we are essentially the product. And, and so it marries the surveillance of our data and our habits into a capitalist um, transaction. And when we talk about data, I can just hear the audience's eyes glazing over a little bit because there have been so many data hacks yeah, and, yes. you know, like I don't really 
know why I should care per se. So what is data? When we talk about my data, I mean, so as, I, as the best I understand it, data is just the exhaust, the digital exhaust fumes of me going about my life, right? I leave a trail, I leave ripples, I leave a wake, and there are little bits of information about my shopping habits, about places that I've called, about, you know, insurance that I may or may not have applied for, uh, you know, in addition to my private information. But I mean, all of that, all of those, that behavioral matrix, that network of data points about my life, that was just going unobserved. I mean, I've all, we've always been doing that. I mean, we've always been, been, if someone had wanted to spy on us before the digital age, they mm. could have pieced together all of these things. Oh, he went to Woolworths at this particular time. <laughs> you know, if you were, had a private eye tracking you, they could have put all of that together. Mm. So what's so bad or so insidious about big companies noticing that basically in order to deliver me more accurate ads? Yeah. So I think the, the, what's, what's different now is the scale and the pervasiveness of that data capture. So, you know, in your earlier example, if somebody wanted to spy on you pre-internet, they had to follow you around. That's quite um, laborious. But now that's just happening by default. So there are digital spies, if you like, everywhere, all the time happening. And, you know, if, if it's, you know, if it serves the purpose of serving you the toothpaste that you want, that's a fairly benign kind of an outcome. However, if it starts to get into the kinds of um, data points that's sensitive and things you may not want to be revealed, like you may have a health condition or you may be, you know, pregnant if 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 you're a, a woman or you may have, you know, something else that you actually don't want um, someone to know about there's often no choice in that data harvesting if it's ubiquitous. And so that starts to become a problem and it starts to become an incursion of our privacy and our data agency when those things are being used and targeted against us. And the other side of it is um, at scale. Like, you know, we humans are very bad at scale and imagining scale and because we're little and we have limited capacities. And so, you know, big data, if you like, can sort of um, discern patterns of behavior and trends that we have no conception of, but is essentially profiting from us. And so what I mean by that is, you know, for example, um, Google, uh, let's say, um, knows where you um, like to uh, go to the gym, knows where you your preferred restaurant, and individually that feels quite benign. But what if you know they start selling um, or they get sponsored by a restaurant that is a competitor to the one that you like? You know, will they start serving that competitor's restaurant every time you log on to the, your preferred one? And where is your data agency in that? So it starts to enter into. Um, behavioral manipulation rather than just behavioral targeting and that's where it becomes really problematic let's talk about another thing you said which is engagement at all cost so when we were talking about the the shrinking of diversity in these big companies and i was making the point that you know there may be only a few com companies but nonetheless in an ideal world or what some people's vision of an ideal world they're not putting their thumb on the scale of what i can say nonetheless their algorithms are reliably favoring information and posts that generate the largest amount of engagement. They want us on the site for one second longer than we would otherwise be. They want us commenting. They want us clicking like. They want us either getting outraged or feeling satisfied. They want us sharing content. They basically just want us staying. Mm. So what does that do? How does that, how does that exert a bias even in the absence of anyone trying to exert a bias yeah i mean that that can lead to a whole host of issues so you know there are studies that found that obviously um you know negative or uh, sensational content is more engaging than neutral ones and so we 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 therefore get a, a bias against that type of a content um and at, at, at scale uh, if that's all we see um we start to go down these rabbit holes. So, for example, if 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 Facebook decided that you were slightly into conspiracy theories, even if it's a benign one, um, it'll keep feeding you conspiracy-like content. 
um, until you know you get to the point where every time you log on, that's all you see, and it feeds you that same sort of content buffet style. And so obviously those things start to become a problem. And the the way that relates to engagement at all costs is because that's what the algorithm is trained to do. So it thinks you like this thing, therefore it'll keep giving you a, an even. And, and it doesn't differentiate between the point at which that becomes harmful to you. It's just doing its job, essentially. So, you know, that's an example of the kind of values we attribute to that, to those algorithms. Um, and, you know, obviously it, it, it doesn't judge for itself, but that's, you know, if you favor engagement at all costs, those sorts of harms start to exert itself. Right. And, I mean, you don't even have to have started out by by. Uh, demonstrating an interest in conspiracy theories. If you just type into YouTube what happened on 9-11, some of that, and usually the the videos that get the most engagement, will be slightly conspiratorial about things not adding up. And then once you've watched that one, because you liked that one, they're going to deliver you something in the suggested videos column that is a little bit more extreme and a little bit more extreme. I mean, I remember reading this study about... Um, anorexia videos on mm. YouTube. Do you know about about that? I think it was on TikTok. So it was actually oh, there right. was a, a Four Corners investigation where this this young girl who she was generally health conscious, and so she started out um, watching just fitness videos. Um, and then all of a sudden, in a very short period of time, I think it was weeks, she started getting anorexia videos, and like then, from people who are pro anorexia who think that it's a that the medical establishment is taking a an unnecessarily negative view of self-starving exactly yeah so so there is a very quick escalation from that initial interest because of the way these systems are set up and um on on the uh, chapter on on trolling you know there was a point in sort of the early noughties where trolling was a bit you know, just for lols is is the term. So it's you know you're just having a joke at somebody's expense. But now, um, you know, it the environment is um, very radicalizing. So I, I actually spoke to a guy who was a reformed neo-Nazi, and he started out as a bit of a troll, and he was um, reflecting on the, the there was a, a grooming process both um, formal and informal online where you know they were able to test um, these young men's, usually young men's receptivity to some of these ideas. And so you might start off with a page on, you know, patriotism or just I love Australia Day. Um, And then if you keep liking those things, all of a sudden, um, weeks later, you're in a group with fully-fledged neo-Nazis. So because of these engagement at all costs sort of algorithms, you know, like a, an escalation and a radicalization is taking place kind of all around us. And it, it's because of how these things are designed. This sort of brings us to the chapter after the chapter on conspiracy theorists and uh, anti-lockdown freedom fighters, which is social media narcissists. <laughs> you know, there is something, isn't there, about the way that we're using the platform? The, I don't know. I mean, I sometimes think that that one of the aspects of social media that we don't tend to talk about that much because it's difficult to put your finger on is the ineffable way in which it's sort of corrosive to your experience of being in the present to constantly have, excuse me, have another avatar of yourself standing on your shoulder, watching what you're doing and trying to curate your own existence for the benefit of other people to look at. Mm. And that does encourage a kind of reflective narcissism you know the 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 girl who wants to get skinny and ends up watching anorexia videos and the guy who just thinks that he's a patriotic australian and ends up consorting with neo-nazis in some way there is a grandiosity to that that seems like it's encouraged by social media yeah, there's a huge performative aspect of our Instagram profiles and you know our Facebook profiles, and it, it it encouraged that that kind of showboating. And you know those things aren't new. Like um, in the book, I talk about you know in in the 1600s, you know, Dutch merchants would would 
commission paintings of themselves with, you know, like peacocks and things like that. So in a way, we've been doing it for a very long time. <laughs> That's but- what I I should ch- change my Instagram <laughs> avatar, my, my profile picture to just a, like a, an Elizabethan painting of me <laughs> surrounded by peacocks, shirtless, obviously. Yeah, obviously. Um, but what's different is uh, this the scale um, at which this is happening. So because those systems are always on, because they reach um, you know global audiences, that performativity and the things that result from it, including you know the insecurity that results from it, the the pressure to feel like what you have to present is constantly perfect, is heightened um, and be- and starts to become really problematic. Um, and I also call out um, social media influencers, and they're they're a bit of a, a pet hate of mine. And I differentiate, by the way, between people who just happen to be influential and are on social media, and people who primarily identify as influencers. So basically, people who you know pose shirtless and just kind of showboat and don't really have any any qualifications other than they may be semi good looking and you know pose online. And so that. Um, Social media influence, I think, is a symptom of where that's gone wrong. Where, you know, rather than a platform to inspire, it's it's become commoditized grandiosity, as you say, um, and it, it's resulting in all sorts of things like, um, you know, people wanting facelifts so that they look like their filtered version of themselves, and you know, just body issues left, right, and center. So. Like with a lot of the other things, it's the it's the scale and the ubiquity of it that becomes problematic. I know a lot of influencers who don't call themselves influencers anymore, but call themselves content creators. Mm. Uh, so there's this middle ground, I suppose, between the fatuous, shirtless, like beach picture in, uh, influencer on the one hand, and at the other hand, on the other end, you have people who are legitimately famous for doing things that are. Uh, that have have made them justifiably successful and just happen to have a lot of followers. But in between, there's a class of health bloggers, Instagram mummies with tips on parenting, mm. uh, Abby Chatfields and Flex mummies and mm. people who have like who are producing content that people actually want and might find intellectually stimulating, but never had a platform until mm. these apps came into existence. What do you make of that field? I find that group very, very problematic. So um, there's two things I want to say on that. Um, QAnons, which is the the mega conspiracy theory that kind of ushered in the world where we are now, actually found a really great partner in those influences during the pandemic because, um, you know, these conspiracies became so amorphous that it started to absorb all these random theories around it. And so the wellness influences in particular are, kind of natural science skeptics and natural vaccine skeptics so they preach you know wellness and natural therapies and all those things and so they um they during the pandemic they tended to absorb QAnon or q adjacent they're called theories without really thinking about where they come from or whether this is scientifically sound and so um you know if those people start talking about um, advice that should really be left to somebody with qualifications like doctors and nurses and that that's when it starts to become a huge issue and you know it's that blurring um, of the personal and the professional and you know that blurring of expertise um, that is a challenge so um, they, they're called pastel QAnon. Um, I can't remember. There was a journalist who dubbed that term, but basically, um, that group was, was a huge super spreader of conspiracies. Um, and they gave a really attractive new face to the conspiracies that we're seeing online. So I think that that group is actually one of the groups that really need to be moderated because they are, they do provide content that others see as valuable, but they should be aligned from, um, benign or uh, passive content, if you like, or to active advice um, that should really be left to medical professionals or mm. people with qualifications. Yeah, I'm not crazy about the term pastel QAnon or, or invoking QAnon because I'm just allergic to to smearing people uh, by association. I think if you don't if you don't believe that Q is an oracle 
who is a legitimate source of information, then we probably shouldn't be calling you QAnon or QAnon adjacent. Mm. But I take your point that there's a universe of conspiracy theories where, I mean, hasn't there been legislation about health advice on social media within the past couple of years in Australia? Yeah, so the the latest one was from the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration. I think it was earlier this year where they actually said um, you you can't be paid to endorse um, health products. And so that only came about this year. Um, so before that, you know, we saw problems with, you know, people like Pete Evans selling, you know, like light therapy things to... Yeah, selling pseudoscientific yeah, to, mumbo-jumbo. To, so th- there's definitely a, um, more attention being paid to that group. Um, but right, they, but they, they can still air their, yeah, their yeah. rumours about vaccines cause, having side effects or something like that. That's right. Uh, and yeah. what's, what's tricky as well is sort of that middle group where they have maybe tens of thousands of followers and not the really big ones because, you know, regulators can only really pay attention to the... The, you know, the, you know, the bigger fish, if you like, and so there's this middle group of of um, influencers that can still kind of get away with whatever they want. I mean, I'm torn, Jordan, because when I hear you say stuff like, you know, they can get away with whatever they want, and regulators can't catch them. Look, we live in a democracy, man. I mean, we live in a, a society that is supposed to be extremely cautious. Like if you look over the grand sweep of human history in all cultures and political situations throughout most most of time, like the greatest threat to human flourishing has not been the fact that some, you know, your neighbor was talk was full of shit. <laughs> it's been the fact that the church or the government, people in positions of power and authority, were enforcing what they regarded as being the correct way of thinking mm. on everybody. So regulators coming in and insisting that only medical professionals, the people who they deem to be medical professionals, who are advised by drug companies, are allowed to you know, control the narrative, and that anyone who spouts the incorrect worldview and misspeaks should be banned from the platform or punished or fined or something. Like, if it's total bullshit you're saying, 100% bullshit, <laughs> maybe I kind of understand it. But... There's a lot of shifting sands in all of this. You know, remember there was a time, there was a long period of time when we were being encouraged not to wear masks at the beginning of the pandemic by the official health authorities. And I knew doctors who were saying, I'm wearing a mask in the the shopping center because I'm assuming that a respiratory illness is is airborne. And we were encouraged not to. It turned out the reason they didn't want us to is because they wanted extra masks for frontline, you know, for people in hospitals and so on. So what room is there for the the boisterous, you know, town hall of ideas where people are allowed to be wrong? Yeah, and and we we definitely want to be careful about where where that um, balance is at, and you know we we definitely don't want to discourage um, dissenting voices and and diverse ideas because that's very important for our information ecosystem. But I think um, what's different. Um, in our current environment is that uh, the, 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 the balance between recognized official and credible information, if you like, uh, can be drowned out by um, the opposite. And so there's a huge world, there's a huge gray area in between that. But overall, we, we, you know, we should want that most of the information that we consume is from official sources that we, we trust in and that's credible. And um, again, we don't live in a perfect society, but a, as a group, for us to function, we need to trust in the institutions that we build. And we need to trust that um, the government will generally, uh, particularly in a democratic government, will generally do right by us. And, and so if that trust is corroded away, then... It's, it's kind of just chaos and it becomes a bit of a free-for-all. And so I think um, the, the point I want to make is that the, these platforms um, have, have started to corrode that trust in those institutions. So it's less about my neighbor who's full of shit and their right to say that. It's, it's more about at scale, there's something happening that is um, uh, you know, decreasing our trust in our institutions and it's facilitated through these digital platforms. Right. And it's not just my neighbor who's full of shit anymore. It's that my neighbor, I suppose, is a part of a tidal wave of some kind of viral meme about 
for example, vaccines, where it's wrong to sort of think of it as a problem of my neighbour talking shit because everyone in the town, the mob, there's a mob stampede towards some piece of misinformation that's gaining virality precisely because of the algorithm's exactly. biases towards yeah, what we like to click on. Exactly. And in, in the physical world, there would be, you know, circuit breakers to, to that neighbor. You know, you know, nobody would really listen to them. But online, that neighbor can connect with all the other neighbors from all around the world together and, 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 and make it feel like there's a movement behind it. So those um, social and physical and real circuit breakers that we employ in the real world don't exist online. Right. I mean, I do think part of the problem of the corrosion of trust is not just that we now have social media as an alternative, but that the institutions have hardly covered themselves in glory in the past few decades either. Like there is a problem. There's a problem of groupthink in journalism, I think. There's a problem of aloofness in government and uh, bad communication from bureaucracy. Uh, there's a problem of rigidity and a lack of openness to other ideas in the medical establishment. You know, these are also reasons that, that leave people primed to be susceptible to the bullshit that's online. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I am not at all excusing, um, you know, current institutions and particularly if, if, you know, they're part of the problem of that corrosion of trust. Um, I think, though, what's, what's happening is that that balance has been recast. And so, um, again, um, that point I made earlier about even though the media ecosystem has issues, we, you know, there are lots of rules uh, to try and correct that imbalance. And, you know, it, it's obvious when um, people ab abuse that. Whereas um, online, we just don't have that same facility to course correct because it's, it's a complete free-for-all. What would the course correction look like? I think there's a number of things. So the book looks at two types of recommendations for each chapter. Um what we can do as individuals is one, and then what we can do as a group. So, you know, as governments, as institutions, as civic society. And for the most part, I definitely think it has to happen in at the group level because it shouldn't be us, um, up to us as individuals to try and navigate all these issues. However, I included the first part because um, I wanted people to feel like they had some sort of agency over the situation. You know, if your, you know, loved one is a conspiracy theorist, are you going to wait until, you know, the next version of the Online Safety Act is enacted and the regulators, you know, get the act together and, and try and, you know, sort something out? Then of, of course not. So I think there's individual actions that we can take and group actions we can take as well. Um, there's there's a lot to do and, I, uh, you know, there is no perfect answer, but, you know, uh, I tend to focus on the role of technology because I do think that the digital platforms are what's sort of escalated a lot of these issues. And it, so if we start from that place where we look at how we rebalance the power um, asymmetry between digital platforms and everything else, how we regulate their ability um, to spread information that is incorrect, how we... Um, uh, basically make sure that they admit their culpability for this, uh, the online harms that they produce and do something about it, um, we can start to shift that balance. So one radical, very radical idea um, in the book uh, was, you know, what if we charge um, digital platforms for the harms that they cause. So, for example, if an oil company, you know, has a massive oil spill, you know, we'd want them to clean that up, right? But for these digital platforms, we sort of just go, uh, you, you, you know, you can just carry on doing what you're doing. Um, and so what the book tries to do is highlight the fact that these harms are real. Um, we, they're all around us and that they're, they're people that we know and care about um, that are, are, are being um, um, hurt by these platforms. And so they really need to take responsibility for it. What's the oil spill in the analogy? <laughs> I, I guess um, all, all the, uh, you know, the, the characters that I've spoken about could, could be, you know, all the, poor um you know like birds covered in oil it's like <laughs> it's the freedom fighter that you know because their lives blew up during the pandemic 
um, they were looking for answers. And so YouTube fed them all these conspiracy theories to the point they became anti-vaxxers. Or it's, you know, the, the troll who is a little bit of an angry nerd gamer who found neo-Nazis you know, it's um, the, the the screen addict who, um, you know, ignores life because they're addicted to screens. So all the personas could be like little oil spills sort of happening everywhere and there's just a lot of them and it's creeping and growing. I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? Because with an oil spill, you've got the tanker with the name of the company emblazoned mm. on it and there's no upside to an oil spill, whereas you can imagine the tech companies saying it's less like an oil spill and it, maybe it's a bit more like i don't know a car manufacturer where you know mm. some people are going to drive really fast and they're going to crash their cars and kill people or you know or a um i don't know a lolly manufacturer or a chocolate a chocolatier where some people are going to just eat way too much and their lives are going to be deranged by their addiction to chocolate but mm. the vast majority of people are using these things in healthy ways and they're not becoming neo-nazis and they're mm. not becoming trolls and so on um a, what do you say to that? And B, is there a sense in which a lot of this is closing a lot of barn doors after the horse has has bolted? I mean, this I'm, I'm I keep coming back to what you said earlier: engagement at all costs. Mm. If you could change the profit, if you could change the way they make money, if you could say, like I don't know, you're not allowed to make money from ad revenue anymore. You have to charge users a fee, and you can't you can't use how long they're spending on the site as a way of determining what you deliver them, wouldn't all of this just evaporate in the sense that they might as well just go back to a reverse chronological feed without having the algorithms that encourage engagement in the first place? Yeah. And you wouldn't have to go around mopping up all of these <laughs> negative externalities from their behavior. I, I do like the, um, the, the car analogy. So, you know, we, we give out licenses so people know how to drive properly. We mandate seatbelts so people are protected and we have speed limits and road rules. I think that's a really useful one to think about digital platforms. If we, have, if we build these protections in place, then people are, for the most part, able to navigate them safely. Um, the other one is kind of pharmaceuticals, um, where you know we there's a lot of regulation around what's helpful, um, what's healthy, and what's not. So, I, I think that system level thinking is exactly what we need to do. Is like how do we make sure that we can operate these platforms uh, as safely and as competitively and uh, as democratically as possible? And to your point about the business model, I think that's a really um, important one. And so one of the people I interviewed was this great um, technologist. Her name's Michaela, and she has been, you know, tinkering with the web for since the very, very early days. And she remarked upon when it switched from the purely research-based, not-for-profit model of the internet to the commoditized version that we see now. That was a really huge leap. So I think there's a lot to be said about the business models of the big platforms and what to do. Um, you know, we don't, I, I, I mean, I, I've worked for um, media organizations before and I see the value of advertising. So I'm, I'm not going to sort of wholesale say we changed that um, overnight. But, you know, the more extreme ends of, of that um, feature, for example, we can regulate. So, for example, micro-targeting. So, you know, do we really need to know you know, how often you go to the gym versus you happen to like going to the gym. Uh, you know, it's like um, what part of our data and our behavior is safe to include versus, you know, like all the sort of hidden um, parts of it that really shouldn't be um, targeted and capitalized on. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think if you start going around saying you're allowed to look at this, but you're not allowed to look at that, you're allowed to look at whether I like gyms, but you're not allowed to look at how many times I go to the gym, then it's just going to become an endless game of whack-a-mole mm. where regulators are, con are just wasting a huge amount of time on a subject that they will never understand as well as the software engineers understand it. Mm. And they will always get around it, a little bit like finance. Like Wall Street's always going to get around regulations because they understand the system mm. better than any regulator does. Uh, and so you have to sort of reform the underlying incentives so that the companies just no longer have an interest in doing it. But I don't know what that looks like. Other than, you, as I say, having a monthly subscription where the user pays and that's mm. the way that they get their revenue. But I don't even know how you structure that. Yeah, like different models will certainly help. And, you know, the other idea is um, 
should we build alternative types of digital platforms? And so one of the um, projects we had um, was called the Public Square Project where, um, you know, rather than relying on Facebook and YouTube, et cetera, for our everyday communications, could we have uh, a digital platform that it doesn't have a profit imperative? So, you know, when we're talking about the more civic side of our information ecosystem, it's not subject to that same level of commerciality. Um, and we have broadcasters like the ABC who are for that. But more and more, the digital platforms and the social media are sort of usurping a lot of those functions. And so should we build online versions of of that but that are not actually privately owned? So like what might a you know public Facebook look like, for example? Interesting. What do you think of Elon buying Twitter? um i i I think it's quite problematic and i mean the the thing about elon is he's just so um volatile and so you know i'm I'm loathe to predict what will actually happen but you know twitter has become really important for our information ecosystem it has a lot of faults i actually wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago kind of saying maybe it's for the best because um, we've gotten so reliant on Twitter for our daily news and um, information, even though it's not actually that great. Um, you know, it, it's like Twitter facilitates this kind of hostile back and forth. It facilitates snarkiness. You know, it, it's pretty hard to have a nuanced conversation in tweet form in general. And so maybe it'll force us to look at an environment that's a little bit healthier than that. But in, in general, I'm obviously... Um, you know, not a fan of billionaires buying, you know, public square platforms because they want that power and influence. I think it's very problematic. You end the book with a chapter about the naive futurists. Uh, I guess you were talking about those at the very beginning of the podcast as well. Um, if you cast, if you put on your prognosticator's hat and think about the future, uh, when my preschool age children are middle-aged what will the internet look like i mean it even sounds silly to say the internet of course (laughs) there's not going to be an internet it's just everything will be networked yeah i think what it looks what it could look like is being decided today i actually think we're in a really important and quite scary milestone about that tech future and so if we allow the current tech barons to define what that future looks like, I think we're going to get more of the same times 10 of the harms because the incentives will be the same. The harms will be magnified. The inequality will be more stark, um, which is in in the chapter, you know, I, I sort of call out that we should really you know, be worried when Meta's um, staked a claim on the metaverse and, you know, um, Jack Dorsey has staked a claim on cryptocurrency and Google has staked a claim on hyper-advanced AI. So, you, you know, it's like where, what is, what will it mean for an everyday person to be in that world where it's controlled by just a small handful of people? I think um, we need to make sure that that power imbalance and the harms that are highlighted in the book are addressed now so that those future versions, whatever it looks like, doesn't carry over the problems that we're seeing today. The book is Disconnect, Why We Get Pushed to Extremes Online and How to Stop It. Jordan, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.